Have you ever wondered what kind of footprint you actually might leave on this world, even if diagnosed with Lewy body dementia or Alzheimer's? This is our story today. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hey everybody, this is Nancy here from Elder Care Success. We're doing it best with Elder Care Success, and I am with my good friend, Jessica Scott, from who's joining us from across the pond. Hello. And Jessica is uh, a, a friend of the family and both of her mom and her dad, who has sadly passed. But the story that I want to bring forward to you is one of a wonderful gentleman who had light and life and joy that he brought to everybody, a former police officer in London and Scotland Yard detective who... I'll use the term contracted or was diagnosed with Lewy body over a period of time and what has happened in the course of his life and some of the great things and some of the not so great things and what has resulted through that, some changes to how the system works or is being made changes to how the system works in the UK and hopefully how those of us here in the US can learn to do better. So with that, Jessica... It is such a joy to be here with you and to share your dad's story because Ray was, I, th- I think of him laughing with my dad over a, a pint. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. We're paddling down the Withlacoochee <laughs> in the stories that we had here in, in Florida and the US as well as the UK. But I'd like to jump in sort of quickly and if you would tell us a little bit about how your dad, Ray Scott, was initially diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. Okay. Um, Well, dad felt in perhaps early 2016 that uh, his memory was a little bit slower than it used to be. He he felt that he was a little bit fuzzy on some tasks, but he was fine. He was very high functioning. Um, However, he did feel there was something wrong. He kept going for the memory tests. He kept passing them. He was he was still driving. He was still talking, still very funny, still very had a motorcycle. I know that went. However, he did have the nagging feeling that something wasn't quite right. A lot of people said, Ray, you're getting older, you're slowing down. That's, you know, that was the usual thing. However, it's part of life, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, the old walking into a room and not knowing why you've walked into that room. I mean, I do that, but he was doing that a lot. He finally got diagnosed in March 2017 with Lewy body dementia. And I remember how he broke it to the family. He said, well, it's not good news. It would appear my brain's dying faster than the rest of me. However, I will make the most. And he said, don't write me off. So um, he was, as I say, he was high functioning. We were still doing a lot of things. He was still very funny. He was still very much with us emotionally and mentally, and he was making the most. Sadly, things changed quite rapidly in November 2018, so just 18 months after diagnosis. And that's fast. Yeah, he had a, he was still very high functioning, but he had a, a huge mental breakdown one day. 
which meant that we had to call his community mental health team and a team came out and assessed him as needing some acute care. So he uh, was taken to a secure ward for... Did he know what was going on yes. at this point yes. of breakdown? Thing, He was just as frustrated with yeah, it, the situation, it, yes, Nancy, obviously. He was very frustrated and um, I have to say it was probably frustration that was driving his main challenges at that point. You know, it was it was the only thing that they could do at the time. He needed some acute care. Um, so they took him to an acute care hospital. In the United States, that would be a regular medical hospital. But in the UK, this was a little different. This was, we had an earlier conversation, this was more like we would probably affiliate with or assume this is more of a, I call it the old days, and I hate to use these terms, but a mental ward. Yes, it was. It's, is that correct? Yes, it's a hospital that has many wards, but they all are specializing in mental health. So you have all different mental health issues there. You have brain damaged patients, you have all sorts of range of dementias, you have severe learning difficulties, high spectrum autism. It's it's a it's a specialist hospital for mental health issues. I think of hallways with locked doors. And Some of the wards were like that, and certainly the ward that Dad went to was like that. Mm-hmm. They have a small patient ratio to a high staff ratio, and it's it's all about getting people um, fixed up to to go back out either their care home setting or their their own home. The outcome ultimately is to go in quickly and come out fast, yes, so that you'll be able to go back to life as normal yes. when it's not really, but as as close to normal as it can be so that you can come back and live with your family or go into a care facility that looks like a care facility here in the States. I call them pseudo hotels. Yes. Pretty. Yeah. It's either to, it's to stabilize you to go back home and be back under the community mental health team amongst your own carers or to go to a care facility, a private care home that can meet your needs. So your dad, Ray, went there and then came back out and went back home. No, he didn't. He uh, he went into that ward and then the task is they assess. After they stabilise, they assess and say whether you are suitable to go back into your home setting, your own domestic home setting with a care package, or whether you are more suitable to go to a care home that can meet your needs. We were told that he was more suitable for a care home and we were tasked with the job to get a care home, find a care home. Now, this is... They didn't say, well, here are three options, go pick one. No. You just said, now what do we do? Which is which is also very typical here. You come out of the hospital yeah. and you can't go home because you're not suitable to be able to walk on your own. You need the assistance or you don't have the support at home. And all of a sudden, a family is charged with, well, that's your problem, not ours. It's a, it's a similar thing here because we have the disconnect between the hospital is a state-run hospital so it's national health service the care homes are private care homes we have very few state-run care homes now so they're all private entities and the so the private pay not necessarily just yes. okay so we've got just to make that distinction so you have a disconnect so the public hospital the national health service hospital is paid for out of the collective taxes of everyone mm-hmm. But then the disconnect is you are then trying to transition into a privately run care home. We do have funding. Dad did qualify for public funding. So finding the funding for it wasn't so much an issue. It was finding a care home that could meet the needs. They can't suggest a particular care home over another one because they would then be showing favour to one care home provider over another. 
So you then have to run around all the care homes within your area to try and find one that can meet his needs. From there, he went to the care home or... He did, yes. He did go to the care home because I know that there was this transition where all of a sudden things started to spiral downhill really quickly. Yes. Um, and that was in the care facility or it was back in the hospital again? Both failed, to be fair. He was placed into a care home. It seemed to meet its needs. They they assess. So obviously the care home send out their staff to assess the needs. They speak to the ward staff to see what dad's needs are. They then put together a report to say why they can meet the needs or whether they can't. If they can, then they are suggested as a care home family get to say yes or no. We said yes to this particular care home, he got placed. They're not then discharged straight away. They actually are released under the Mental Health Act. They're released into the care home for a period of time. Dad was given 14 days for the transition Mm -hmm. period, of which time the hospital are putting staff into the care home just to check that the needs are being met. Sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds fabulous. Yes. I had somebody checking in to make sure that mom or dad were taking their meds, they were feeling well, they were emotionally engaged and felt like this was a new home and life was going to just be hunky-dory, yeah. as they and say. And you get right? all the positive vibes from it and you think, okay, right? this is the next chapter and we're on board with it. Sadly, on day 13, this care home placement failed for dad. He demonstrated some behavior that they weren't equipped to deal with. He wanted to step outside and they didn't want to allow him outside at this time and they didn't deal with it properly. Unfortunately, he was then ejected from there via the police. I know. He was then taken back to the hospital. So he's back to to where he started. So we're back in the acute care ward in the hospital, in the clinical setting. And now he's already transitioned now three times from home to the hospital, back to a care facility, yeah. then back to the hospital again. Yeah, all in the space all in the of, course two weeks. of like yeah. three yes. weeks, right? Which isn't good. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows anything about dementia, but it's. Or Louis Body specifically. Louis Body, big changes aren't helpful. They're very stressful. They're stressful for the family as well. So it's stressful for any of one of yeah. us. It doesn't matter unless we're on vacation. And even then, <laughs> you know. even then, it takes a while to get used to places. So we're back on the ward, but it it appeared that things weren't really going too great there. The environment was very clinical. As I said, dad was very high functioning. He still had a lot of insight into his condition and into what felt right and what felt not so right. He was in an all-male ward, coming from a family with two daughters, two granddaughters, lots of sisters. He was very, very used to having female company. So the all-male ward wasn't really working for him. It didn't bring the normality that he needed. And there was just a lack of engagement that dad needed, the level of engagement. So we started trying to bring in some extra engagement. We we employed somebody to come in and engage with him in addition to our visits. And dad seemed to come out of his shell while we were there. We had some nice times. We had some positive times, some good visits. But more often than not, he wasn't thriving. The the environment wasn't working for him. It was a clinical setting. It wasn't, it was at home. Too clinical. Yeah. And he knew, knowing your dad and Ray, and I could see where he would be very much aware, even with a diagnosis like this, of what his surroundings were and why he was there. Well, you're talking about a, a building that had been purposefully built for this situation. However, it had been built not with the people's needs in mind, but more so from the clinical side. So there was a lot of viewing areas, a lot of 
toughened glass to look through, a lot of bright lighting. There was no personal effects. Everything was very clinical. There were just chairs all positioned to look at each other. There was a TV. I think lab rat scenario, right? It's the only way I can describe it as you're just thinking green mint green walls with dirty tiles not that they'd be dirty but you know the the dirty grout and and hard metal chairs which are it was just not can be dangerous too and not anything that you would expect somebody to live in 24 hours it was um where to heal it to heal it quite frankly nothing nurturing about it you had some problems your dad stayed there for a little too long because they just didn't know how to i will use the term that used normalize them so he'd be able to go back to something but there were some major issues that were going on that turned out to be assaults that's right there was peer-on-peer assaults it was a very uh, aggressive environment. There was there was nothing to only with eight people. with eight residents yeah, exactly. as well. Yes. How did you even notice that something was going on? Because we try and help our parents or a spouse to go into a place like mm-hmm. this, and we think that, in all honesty, the staff there and the doctors are doing their best to try and make sure that our loved ones heal, mm-hmm. and that's not always the case. But the awareness factor is really hard for us sometimes to even know, or we may know, but we, we're afraid to admit it, right? Right. Absolutely right. I, I think what it is, is it's trying to see the behavior. What were the signs that you had that you knew immediately that something was just definitely wrong? Dad was starting to say to us, you know, don't just don't walk past that person or, oh, this person keeps picking on me, this sort of thing. I saw it myself. I sat in a few of visits with dad and there was some some openly aggressive behavior. No blame here. These are all people who are uh, in need of help. Sure. No, I, I got it. But they were not necessarily kept safe was no, from one another yes, either, exactly. which would have been putting people in isolation, which also isn't mentally good either. Yes, exactly. It was just it all wasn't working on so many levels that we decided to do a freedom of information request to read all the files. And that's when we really started to realize that this this wasn't working at all for dad and that there were some safeguarding issues. And it ended up with a safeguarding investigation. And we discovered that the, the, the amount of assaults between the peers was a little too high. You said it was something like 17 or 18 in the yes. course of, what, two weeks or something? No, like in the course of a few months. But still, I mean, that's... It's, the fact that even one happened. Yeah, and, and 11 of those was the same other patient. So obviously there was some dynamics there that, that weren't picked up on that could have been avoided. So obviously we were concerned about dad's safety. We were concerned about dad's health, dad's welfare. So when we started reading the files, we started asking questions. And then it resulted in somebody else made a call, an anonymous call. A whistleblower? Yes, a whistleblower. They call them here yeah, in the States, yeah. same here, a whistleblower. The family were called in and we were told that they were moving dad to a different hospital. So he moved to another hospital, completely different environment, same opposite number, if you like, just in a different area. But this place, it didn't look like a, it wasn't state of the art. It wasn't a new building. It was an old building fashioned into a mental health ward. Mm-hmm. And it had signs and feelings of a homely atmosphere. So it had things on bookcases. It had 
a television in the corner and armchairs. It had a bookcase and it had a TV. The other one didn't, The other one had a television, but it was sort of 20 foot high up on the wall. And they're just... Don't touch. Yeah, and this one had books and dolls. It was a mixed ward. So there was male and female patients, which makes it a more normal society for, for, for dad, especially because... You know, he's used to a, a mixed society of male and female. The aggression level... Most of us are. Yeah, exactly. The aggression level wasn't there. Um, I don't know whether it's because it's a mixed ward and it's not just all males with nothing to do and nothing to look at and no engagement. But this was very different. It was it was more nurturing. It was more conducive to family visits. It felt more normal. And dad started to change. Dad started to become... A, just more of himself. We saw more of his characteristics come back, more of his little phrases, more of his laughter came back. It's amazing that you say that because so many of us, you know, we, we'd want to do the best for those that we love, whether it's a parent or a spouse or another loved one. And as much as we're looking at an environment to try and help them, and it may look pretty, it's everything else that goes around Absolutely. that to make it seem more like what they're familiar with. And that includes the people that are yes. there too. Yes. And how they interact. So it's, I don't want to say if it's a positive statement or not, but just something that we have to all be aware of what's going on. You may want to go to a hospital to get healed, mm-hmm. but if it's not something that's physically going to be something that is going to make you feel comfortable, then you're not going to heal. That's right. It's plain and simple. Yeah. Our mental capacity to accept the willingness to meld into our our environment so that we're comfortable enough to say, okay, now I can focus on on me and I can exhale a little Mm -hmm. bit. Even if I do have dementia, then that's a good thing. Well, with Now, one of the things, yeah, go go ahead. I was going to say with with dad, there was an awful lot left of him still there. You know, he he still knew who he was. He knew who we were. He hadn't forgotten those things. He, He wasn't somebody who'd forgotten what his life was before or who his family was. He still had a massive, massive sense of who he was. And a great jokester and still, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still still great jokes. And for that, th- there was no person centered. There was no on the previous ward, there was no ability to be an individual, to be Ray Scott. It was You were a number, you were a patient, you were not an individual who mattered Absolutely. to somebody. It was, uh, it was very depersonalized. It was very clinical. The second place, they allowed a lot more personality. And we didn't, we didn't suffer the same problems there. Sadly, though, obviously, time marches on. So does uh, a disease such as dementia. And, and of course, a certain amount of time in a hospital setting, you do get institutionalized. So we were fighting the clock on that. We really were. We were learning what was good and what was bad. Dad was telling us, dad was our indicator. He was, he was telling us a lot of the time, you know, he would, he would say such profoundly inspiring things to us while he was in these wards you know, he would reach out to people. He was still very connected. This is what... It sounded like he really wanted to be part of the solution. He did. He did. And, and he actually still is. Even though he's since passed away, he's still part of the solution. He's a very big part of some of the solution that's coming. There's one point that you're bringing up is that as much as we work hard to try and help those that we love... We have to remember that no matter what stage they're in, dementia, Lewy body, Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. any kind of decline, that 
even if they can't speak, they're part of the solution. And there's always a way to communicate in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a touch or a look. In your dad's case, he was able to still talk, mm-hmm. which was yeah. great. And they, you know, I mean, if you're connected with somebody, you know when they're not happy. Yes, you do. And you have to trust. Smile. It's a tilt of a head. You ask a question and you have the conversation and don't give up. Don't ever give up on having those discussions at any point. Absolutely. You're right. But also trust your instinct. If your gut instinct is this place isn't working, this this situation isn't nurturing, this situation isn't helping, trust your instinct and, and inquire and ask and challenge One of the reasons why I want to have this discussion is that you have made some really profound changes or started to make some profound changes in the UK and how how things are working for individuals who are living in these facilities Mm -hmm. or these homes in the UK and the families, the carers who are out there. Part of out of the neglect that happened with your Mm -hmm. dad, sadly, out of being a victim of the system and society, and partially because the system wasn't listening to you at the yes, time. Yes, that's right. And we just explain a little bit about what had happened and where you are now and what changes have happened or where we started. And I've got some notes that I will put in the show notes afterwards that link to some PDFs to ex- actually explain how Jess and her family have really forcing, quite frankly, the system to have more of not just a number on a body, but use their head and their heart to create better actions and better lives for people who don't have to be just locked away. That's true. It's the only way I can describe yes. it. Right? No, you're right. Well, first of all, obviously, the, we had to follow the procedure of an investigation. These things take time. The coronavirus did slow things down a, a lot, but it didn't stop us. Uh, and it didn't stop the people who we were discussing with. And at the end of the investigation, we just kept prodding and poking and looking at it forensically and wanting to go deeper and wider. And that's another bit of information there. Any advice to somebody could be, don't just accept the first bit of paper that they put under your nose and say, look, this is what happened and and this is what's going to happen. Just keep thinking, keep pushing and be a nudge. Yeah, exactly. And just say, this is really important. This didn't go well. And it didn't just not go well for dad. It didn't go well for the family. It's it's a family in crisis, really, when you're caring for somebody and they're not getting better and you're given these impossible tasks to find somewhere to place them. But we engaged with this investigation. We didn't want to bully them into seeing our way. We wanted to convince them that there is a better way. And I think on about the third report, they came out with maybe 17 or 18 action plans of how they were going to address the deficits that we'd pointed out as an outcome of dad's case. Um, we, of course, this is after first two letters that were sort of nice, pat you on yeah, the head, everything yeah, is fine, we, go we, away. I'm terribly of sorry, but yeah. And I have to say... Not our fault. Yeah, but I'm really happy because the, the people that did actually push out these action plans were invested, they were engaged, and they did listen. They did truly listen. And they, they did go and meet Dad and try and put a, a face to the name that they were reading about. That that was a massive thing for, for me. Some of the investigators would come out and meet, you know, just to, to get an idea of what we were saying. So they engaged with us, we engaged with them. It ended up with 17 action plans as a response to what we were saying. Some of the the more tangible ones, the actual ward that dad started out on has been environmentally altered to become more homely because we said compare and contrast it with the second one he was in that he did better in and there was less aggression and more engagement. Mm -hmm. And 
that was taken on board. We also found that there was a deficit on the first place of CCTV or body cams on staff. They've now installed those on that ward. So if anyone else is in a similar situation and they need to try and see what was happening, they will have the capacity to look at the camera footage or body cam footage. It's not your, just your word against mine, because I know the pictures that you had mm. sent of your dad with black mm. eyes and cuts. And it was, oh my God, this is, it was heart wrenching to yeah. see that alone, that this was, this was actually it happening. Is. I mean, when, when people are in a, a ward like that, 24 hours a day, we are the first family to understand that there are people in there who really do need some care and, sure. you know, that they're, they're not to blame for their actions. However, we do have systems. We're in the 21st century. We do have systems where we should be safeguarding, monitoring what we measure, we control. They weren't measuring, looking for patterns of where this aggression was happening, why was this aggression happening? That's another thing we've managed to highlight to them to install. They're now looking at a way that their computer systems can actually look at bringing out a pattern that shows them a cause and reaction, yes. not necessarily that it's not it's not a result of always the disease, but it can be brought about by social and yes. environmental yeah. issues that around good yes. people, even though they are diagnosed with this, that this this can yes. happen. It's so they can They can install systems to safeguard better so they can perhaps see where the flashpoints are, why the flashpoints are, the triggers. So now they've got more training in the triggers of this disease or on these wards. Other things that we managed to convince for, for changing is a reflective practice. So we put down the words and the effects and the impact that our situation and, and dad's treatment in there had on us. And it was read out to the members of staff who were there. It's not meant to demotivate them or anything negative like that. It's just to show them the other side, to show them the chain reaction that is started. I mean, we did actually suffer mentally ourselves, emotionally, we were suffering, you know, watching this. And it's just so people actually get an idea of the impact uh, of what they're doing or not doing. What they're doing is not just caring for one person, but they're actually caring for the entire family. The frustration and the anger that was there because you and I had a number of yes, conversations yeah. over the course of those those years. And I think it's helpful for, hopefully, for people who have a sense of conscience. Most people don't go into the health industry if they don't want to make a difference. They, they do care. Right? What can happen is if they're working there day in, day out, long shifts with patient A one day, patient B the next day, do they have an idea of the sense of person? Do they have an idea of the humanity of that person, the, the the little individual traits and so on? We did have a booklet to fill out when dad was actually admitted to the hospital called Getting to Know You. Fabulous idea. And, <laughs> I have to, I have to yeah, laugh was, because I wonder whether they ever read well, that type of thing, right? We found out that they hadn't. We'd filled it out. We took our time. We sat over a coffee, filling it out, getting to know you. What does Ray like? What does Ray dislike? What's what's his favorite things? What foods does he like? What does he look forward to? What was he planning before he came in here? These sorts of things. Fabulous stuff. Made us feel very positive. Sadly, after the freedom of information request, we find that it was never acted on. There's a, an example of somebody coming up with a good policy, a good procedural design, and then it just not being followed through. It's not being implemented. 
I can imagine here in the States, and I know there are two different systems, but it's a point of comparison. The typical care facility, this is not a hospital. The hospitals also have their other challenges, but in a care facility, you can have one, I'll call them caregivers because they say staff numbers, you know, staff to residents is mm-hmm. different, but staff members could be your accountant, you could be your general manager, it could be your marketer, there are a number of ways to, to, to fudge yeah. those numbers. But the actual hands-on care person that's there in the room day in and day, making sure they're safe and whatnot, can be one aide yes. to up to 20 different individuals. And that's very difficult to find the time. I'm not giving the excuse, but very difficult to find the time to read through those materials and actually find out who the people are and the families yes. are that they are responsible for. And if you are the staff member, and it's not an excuse, but it's just a yeah. sort of a point of discussion, if you are the staff member, and your job is to get the numbers done and report to the mm-hmm. boss versus report to the family, I can understand how those things slip Absolutely. through the cracks in many facilities. Yes. So, um, so, but bringing the family in and knowing that families care because a lot of them do, and some of them are just scared to death to see somebody's losing this part of their life. It's frightening. Well, that was another thing. We felt almost as though we were being kept away. We weren't. But we felt that dad was becoming more the property of the hospital as opposed to a member of our family. There's this feeling of of losing them into a system. You go to progress meetings every six weeks. Like they knew better. Yes. And almost not even that they're shielding you, but that they knew better and you yeah. can't possibly. And, and that's another thing that. You've only lived with this man for, you know, yeah, 50 exactly. odd years, so you right? Know, you know the person. And this is another part of the program that we're, we're on, the Care Involvement Bank, is that they realize that the family, the carers, the social network that this person had or has is an asset. It's an asset to be used. You can work together, you can collaborate to to bring out a better outcome for both the patient and the family and the the friends, because you're actually exchanging information where you need to. I think a lot of the time people get frightened of confidentiality clauses and data protection, Mm -hmm. and it sometimes gets in the way of really necessary ex- yeah, really necessary exchanges yeah, right. of information that can make everybody's life better and the giving of care easier. So we've actually looked at that as well in this report that when they actually don't share information, it now has to be given a, a title and the person who's not sharing the information has to justify why they won't share. We had a situation where I think I'd share with you at one point when we moved mom and dad out of a, a care facility that they were in for a number of reasons that when I asked for their medical record, Records. The nurse there at the facility said they didn't have it. Then the doctor who did blood work and reports there for the hot, for the facility said they didn't have it. And it was this back and forth. So nobody had medical records, yet we were paying for medical yeah. care and tests once a month. At that point, for, for their life and their health, it was just to get them out as fast as possible. We'd start mm-hmm. from scratch. I get that scenario. Now, you've got that part of transition and bringing that that point in the family involved. But then there's that other section where you said that they're also talking when somebody passes on mm-hmm. or dies, they're, you're also working to make sure that things just don't yes. stop because now, and that happens a lot yeah. in many facilities, the bed is open, we got to get to the yeah. next check. I, I tend to be kind of indirect. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> Especially when there's this deluge of people mm. who are coming into this age range and the number of people being Absolutely. diagnosed it's, with it's Alzheimer's increasing. and dementia is yeah. just going to ex- escalate. It, it certainly is. 
Well, we actually said that dad, obviously, from moving from the home setting into the acute hospital ward, then into a care home, and then back to an acute hospital ward, and then to a different acute hospital ward, then to a care package at home, which failed, and then back into the acute ward again. Yeah, dad was exhausted, so were we. Each time, we started a different routine. But it was the same. Some things were the same. Dad was the same. We were the same family, the same support network. However, for each time something happened, be it a failure or a natural move or a, a trial at a care home or a care package to home, each time that failed or ended for whatever reason, there seemed to be no closure meeting. There was no debriefing. There was no right sitting down. This has happened plan the plan is now this this is the strategy you felt a little bit lost uh, it was foggy it was just sort of right you're, you're somewhere else now and and we have to do this so everything sort of stopped and you started from yeah, square one again and you felt like you were climbing up a greasy pole part of the criticism and it's not just me and my sister it's everyone in the family has had their say we we've talked a lot of people said there was just no beginning middle and end There was no closure. There was just this hanging in the air. And the last time, Dad died sadly at the end of December 2019, and he was still in hospital. We still hadn't found um, a, a care solution for him. It was he was taken to another hospital, a general hospital, where he then died. So it was another hospital we were in. And once he died, that was it. There was no meeting. We didn't. Even though we were going into the hospital prior to that, the mental health hospital, we were going in every day. He had a room there with his name on the door. We got to know the staff. They got to know him. And then he died. And then that was it. We never saw them again. We never had a meeting. We, there was not a piece of paper. There was, there was nothing. It was, it was almost as though you had to pinch yourself. This really happened? Did I dream all of this? It's hard for the family, but it's also difficult for staff members who do create a bond mm-hmm. and attachment to an individual yeah. and a family. And you lose good people that way too, unfortunately. Well, it's just, we wouldn't dream of not having some form of ending to anything or at least an explanation. And we're talking about deeply emotional and upsetting things. And to just not go back to a place because they've been taken away and died, especially the journey, talking about the journey of this case and and other cases like it. You just wanted to get a sense of somebody sitting still for a minute with you and saying, okay, this is where we are now. This is the end of the line. We're here. How are you? What do you need? And it's somebody somebody caring enough about you. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, so this is something you've actually instituted a whole change in how the NIH system is is working to help those that are brought into the care facilities, brought into yeah. the care homes, mm-hmm. state run, not necessarily private, correct? Or well, is it we both? have actually engaged with one of the care homes. It's a it's a large care home brand who Dad was in uh, for those thirteen days before his placement failed and they've actually taken on board some of the some of the critique that we gave them and they've created a whole new position for training because I think dad was the first Louis body dementia patient that they'd ever wow. had. That's that's hard to believe but yeah but I understand. So, I mean I don't know if your listeners know much about it but it's a, a slightly more complex dementia disease than some of the others um, because their moods and their abilities can actually change so rapidly they can some days you would talk to dad and think 
I don't know why you're in here. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. And other days, it was very, very clear he was he was not in a good place. And sometimes that change in behavior, change in ability could, could happen quite rapidly. As I say, dad was quite high functioning, so he never lost his speech, but he did used to get quite frustrated. So it was very, very important that the the care package was right to avoid any challenging behaviours that become even more difficult to, to handle. So really, from a point of view of Lewy body dementia especially, it is important that there is a little bit more personality and person-centered care actually injected into the care program that this person receives. It's a difficult form of illness for anybody to deal with. One of the things I wanted to bring into our show, which I started at the beginning and, and I think is important for everybody to understand here, is that although you've done this work sort of looking through the yes. rearview mirror, uh, shall we say, to make the changes, this whole process of identifying what was happening to try and make some changes to get some answers so that the care was being provided properly while your dad was, mm-hmm. was with us was a process. And then the ability to actually make the significant changes that impact an entire society and a system has happened afterwards. And really what I wanted to share is that every single one of us has the opportunity to do something like this. It may not be as big as what you have been able to do, but just the little tiny things, the little subtle changes that can happen or the differences that we can all make for good, even though we're struggling with the challenges of of an older parent or frail parent dealing with their own health systems is important as we move forward. And Jessica, I really want to thank you for everything you've done because I knew your dad, obviously not as well as you and and Sylvia, his wife and your your stepmom. Families really need to be able to step up and say, it's my joke as I say, you're mad as hell and I'm not taking (laughs) it anymore, right? (laughs) (laughs) To To be fighters for good in a way that can make a difference for so many other people, even after, after us. For that, I have so much respect for the work that you've done and And I really want to thank you for that. Thank you. So with that, this is the end of our show. There's so much more that we could do with with Jessica. And uh, I know there will likely be another show because there's so much that's happening across across the (laughs) pond, as they say. And quite frankly, you're too polite for us <laughs> Americans. Again, I want to thank you, Jessica, for, for taking the time to be here and share this. There will be a PDF that I'll put in the show notes so you can get to see some of the changes that Jessica has made as a result of these things, some of the training that's going on in care facilities, some of the way that the staff members are now engaging differently. And hopefully this is be something that many of the people here in the United States can learn from as well. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.